0: I guess it's time to take the tree down, don't you think? Don't you think it's probably time? The presents are all unwrapped. The holiday ham, it was already eaten. The tree has reached the end of its usefulness. And many of you will actually take it down this afternoon. And you think that I'm making this up. But actually, a few years ago, I used this illustration to start my sermon on a Sunday when Christmas was on a Sunday, and I got multiple pictures at the end of the day of people taking pictures of their trees at the sidewalk when they went out for a walk. So some of you are going to do it today during the football game. It will happen. But what's the rule? What's the rule that we're supposed to follow by the, to take down our Christmas tree? Some of you live by the policy, up by Thanksgiving, down by Christmas. And like I said, some of you will take that very literally, and it will be gone or it's already gone from your house. Some of you are the up on Christmas Eve and down on New Year's Eve where there is nothing at all in the house uh, and then Christmas morning all of a sudden there's a tree and the presents and everything's there. It all arrives on Christmas morning. Uh, Some of you also live by the up on Veterans Day down by the 4th of July. (laughs) I, I don't quite understand. It seems like you've got your holidays mixed up a little bit. I but that's the way that some of you uh, choose to live uh, your life and have, have at it, all right? Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Milo, and if you're watching online this morning, I want to say hello, uh, welcome in. It's good to be with you on this uh, December the 26th morning, and I lived by the rule in my house when I was growing up uh, that you would decorate and put everything up on December 1st, and then on January 1st, you would take everything down and put it away because that tree that held its prominence for the whole month there of December, it was time when New Year's Day came around, it was time to take it down. Uh, The ornaments need to be put away, the boxes, they need to be put away. I think that this is the proper order of things. This is the way that it should be done and some of you are shaking your fist emphatically at me right now and that is fine. Uh, This year uh, we're going to take a little bit of a different approach to it because this afternoon I'm getting in a vehicle and driving away and going and spending a few days with extended family. And we put up our Christmas tree a little bit early this year. We put it up, uh, we went out and got a tree and cut it down and did so uh, on Black Friday. So we went out a little bit earlier than we typically do and our tree looks like it. Uh, this morning, I mean, there are, I And mean, when we tried to get presents out from under the tree yesterday. The whole tree just would kind of just wither and, and shake. And so we've got a lot of sticks in our living room and a lot of, a pile of pine needles on the floor. So we're uh, a little bit concerned about whether we should leave that tree uh, for a few more Days And so I, I want to kind of pinpoint again the proper way to do this is December 1st to January 1st. We, my family, broke the rule and now we are living in light of a broken rule. The reality is this is actually kind of backwards to the way that tradition is, quote-unquote, supposed to be done. Here in this part of the world where we live, uh, Christmas has been pushed on us. The decorations have been pushed on us. The stores open earlier and earlier every year with all of their uh, Christmas uh, things, their Christmas carols, Christmas candy canes. You've been doing it all. Uh, You've been drinking your Christmas, Christmas eggnog for weeks. Some of you don't like eggnog, and I don't understand that. Uh, eggnog Nation, we need to rise up and make sure that people know uh, that eggnog is what it's all about. Uh, some of you have been watching your Christmas Hallmark movies for weeks and weeks and weeks. And, uh, and some of you are just done. By the time you get to this point, we are done. And if you've been watching multiple Hallmark movies, I'm with you. I'm done as well. It's over. I'm good. Shut it down. <laughs> this booze over here somewhere. All the the excitement builds up to that morning, that Christmas morning, December 25th. And then it kind of stops abruptly. Christmas is over. And the new year begins and people go back to their normal lives. And like I said, this actually is backwards to the way traditional Christmas celebration is supposed to be. The Christian celebration of Christmas is exactly the opposite. Traditionally the season of Advent begins on the 4th Sunday before Christmas and nearly a month Christians will actually await the coming of Christ with spiritual expectation, singing and hymns and a season of longing. And then on December 25th, Christmas itself ushers in the 12 days of Christmas, you know the annoying song that I'm talking about, and all of you have heard all the different renditions of it, and I think the Muppet one is pretty much the best one out there, but, uh, but the 12 days of Christmas is actually a, a traditional thing that Christians would always do. Five golden rings. Christmas is traditionally a long, long Celebration. I was talking to a friend that I play soccer with. He's from Serbia, actually. And he asked me about uh, how long we were fasting for Christmas. I said, oh, uh, I don't know that we do that. Tell, t- tell me about that one. So actually, in, in history, he's of Eastern Orthodox, uh, as his tradition. And actually, the 40 days before Christmas, uh, they don't eat any meat. They don't eat any dairy. They don't have any cheese. And then Christmas morning, they begin their celebration. And they eat, and they eat, and they eat. Anyone want to become Serbian uh, this morning and, and and worship in that way? Uh, because it's a beautiful thing. We want to celebrate. It's a celebration. If you're a regular here, you've heard me tell you before about a professor that I had in college. I went to a Christian university, and he would walk around all year long. He would begin almost every class. I had youth ministry classes with him. I had some other classes with him, uh, a New Testament survey class, and he'd always begin by saying, "Merry Christmas." He would grab people in the hallways as they are walking through. He'd shake their hand and say, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. I thought, this guy is weird. But the reality is he was trying to help us see and not, not push away and forget about Christmas all those other days of the year. Reminding us about the birth of Jesus Christ on the normal days. You know the ones I'm talking about. The days where he doesn't really feel like you're in the holiday spirit. Because he's here on the normal days as well. Have you ever thought about Jesus as a normal person? Because he also had normal days. Have you ever thought about Jesus as a baby? Parents, have you thought about what it was like to potty train Jesus? Was he a normal baby? Do you think that he had to be potty trained? Do you think that he had accidents? Do you think that there was trouble? Did he have to take tests in school? Yeah, I think that he did. I think he was terrible at biology. I just assume that he is. Maybe he was really good at it. I don't know. Maybe he did better in other classes, and, and maybe he got picked last for gym class. And Mary and Joseph had to talk to him about how people are mean sometimes and how you have to deal with those things. He had to deal with all of those things. Jesus was very much a normal little boy. Did Jesus have to do chores? I think that he did. Did he have to clean his room? Yeah, I think that he did. Do you think he had to make his bed? Yes, I think that he did. And just as an aside, I think that some of you uh, should make your bed every day. Maybe that's a New Year's resolution that you need uh, to make. Like you need to, you need to work on these things. Jesus had to do chores and, and he had to do them just like the rest of us have to do them. Some of you have in mind that Jesus is like Mickey Mouse in the movie Fantasia and he's cleaning all the things in his room and all of his clothes are marching into the hamper and he's like, phew, phew, phew. Jesus was just a normal boy who lived on this earth, the same as you and the same as me. Just like the prophets foretold, Emmanuel, God with us. He had this miraculous birth in Bethlehem. And we have a lot that we can read about in scripture, particularly in Matthew and in Luke. But we don't have that much about his childhood to go on. His life is actually completely silent in scripture except for this story that we're going to look at today. We're in Luke chapter 2, if you want to make your way there. Luke chapter 2, it happens just a tad after the normal Christmas narrative. Not 12 days after Christmas, but 12 years after Christmas. This is Luke chapter 2 and I'm going to begin in verse 41. Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. So some time has passed. Jesus is now twelve years old. He's going up to Jerusalem for the Passover. He's a Jewish boy, and so they would be bar mitzvah at age thirteen. He would attend and be able to be part of all the festival things that are happening there. But he's going early. He's part of the family, and during his twelfth year, he begins to participate in some of the things as he is preparing for his own bar mitzvah. This is a rite of passage for a young Jewish boy, and it's exciting. He's there at this festival. He's there with all of his friends, all of his family. First forty-three. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed back in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Now this bothers some people. When I say some people, some people, when, when someone says some people, sometimes they're really talking about themselves. You know, when some people are doing this or some people doing that. So this passage, I will say that some people... Uh, have, have trouble with this passage because you want to ask the question, where are these kids' parents? What is going on here? They travel all the way to this city and they don't actually know that Jesus is with them? Now, this is not a therapy session, I get that. I want to make sure that this is not for me to just like air all my grievances, but why, why can't they keep track of Jesus? I, I've also been left at church dozens of times when I was a child, so maybe that has something to do with it. Why did they leave Jesus behind? What was going on? Was Mary a bad mother? Was Joseph a really bad care provider for his son? Well, actually, that's not the case. Uh, if you again think culture about what's going on in this time, the family would travel and they would travel in these large companies of friends and of family and relatives to, from Nazareth and they would all go there together and there would be king, kids intermingled in with all the adults. It was a camping trip. It was a caravan. They were moving together. And so uh, they had just suspected, most likely, that he was playing with another group of friends in a different uh, part of the group. And he's coming along. He's probably with them. He's not a toddler. He's 12 years old. So he's got some freedom. He's got some uh, extent. So this level of freedom would have been very, very common for him to have been there. There would be that kind of trust that would be in that community of people that they're moving and worshiping and coming together. So his parents didn't realize that he was With them. Verse 44. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and their friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, So there's a day's journey, if you think about it. So they went 10, maybe 20 miles out, and this is when they notice that he is missing. They realize he's unaccounted for. And then it takes another day to return. So now there's two days there, and then they probably spent the better part of a day looking for him. So that's where the three days come up with that that he's not accounted for. They don't know what's going on. Where is Jesus located? Again, culturally, we've got to remember, this is totally different from the context in which we live in with modern smartphones and GPS and everything that we have to be able to tell where our kids are. We expect that our kids can be pinpointed or that our loved ones can be pinpointed within a few minutes. You want to know where they are, what's going on. I mean, even the reality of the situation is even one generation ago when I was a kid, like we didn't have that level of expectation. I would leave the house early in the morning and just come back eventually the rest of the day. I would be in and be out and mom would not really worry about me until I'd missed a few meals. And so that's kind of what's going on here. And that's just one generation ago. Most of you are nodding your heads. You know what I'm talking about. If you go back 2,000 years, it's different. It's different. Of course it was different. Verse 46. So after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone had heard him, was amazed at his understanding, amazed at his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Don't you know I had to be in my father's house? Hang on a second. What did he just say? He says, don't you know that I have to be in my father's house? house? Is Jesus being a jerk? Is he just being a punk teenager? Is he talking back? Is he being snarky? What is what is going on here? Because Mary and Joseph just realized that their child is missing. They've taken a day trip to come and find him. They're very concerned. They probably now, after walking around the city for a day, to try to figure out where he is at now that they find him they're frightened and a lot of times like you and I do get as parents they're a little bit embarrassed and so they're going to take it out on their kids the mother is angry Mary's upset and she says child why have you treated us like this look your father and I we've been searching for you we've been looking for you you're causing us anxiety and Jesus offers what appears to be on the surface a cheeky response says didn't you know I'm about my?" father's business here in my father's house Ah. so if I'm Joseph I can kind of hear my own voice I I can feel the temperature rising in my body when this kid starts to talk to me like this I don't know who you think you are son but your mother is talking to you right now right it's the same way that I was talked to when I acted up as a teenager. It's the same way that I talk to my kids when they act up. But the I don't know who you think you are in this situation doesn't actually apply. I don't know who you think you are because he is not being a defiant teenager. He is actually who he thinks he is. He's 12 years of age. But he's beginning to understand and comprehend the divine calling that is on his life from his father who is in heaven. And his parents don't understand entirely what's going to become of their son Jesus. But it's clear as they're hearing this, as he is seeing this, as, uh, this, this son of the local carpenter, it would seem, is actually the son of God. And he understands what it is that he is here for. He is Emmanuel, God with us how beautiful this is and so they marvel in amazement at what is happening in front of them verse 50 they did not understand and this is to be expected how could they understand we're still trying to figure it out all these years later what are you saying to them but he went down to nazareth with them and he was obedient to them his mother mary treasured all these things in her heart and jesus grew in wisdom and stature with favor with god with man. We won't hear about Jesus for 18 years after this. There's no other document, there's no other record of what has happened in Jesus' life. And then we see him as a 30-year-old man at the Jordan River, waist deep in the Jordan River with John the Baptist. That's when we see Jesus begin his public ministry. That's when we see God's voice from heaven speak, this is my son in whom I am well pleased In this passage, at 12 years old, when he is there in the temple with these leaders, he is conversing with them already about the Holy Scriptures. See, it would have been very common during that Passover time for the Jewish Sanhedrin, the rulers, the teachers of the day, to be gathering people in the temple courts and holding discussions during festivals like this, giving training sessions, if you will, for young students and those who would want to become disciples, those who would want to call them rabbi. Jesus was sitting there, he was listening, he was discussing, and he was filled with wisdom. What a beautiful picture this is. The God of the universe, the maker of all things, is humbling himself and sitting at the feet of the teachers of the day. Being trained on the scriptures. Not only were his parents astonished by him... The ones he was talking with, these these leaders, they were mesmerized by him themselves. Jesus refers to the temple here as he responds to his parents. He says, this is my father's house. The Bible describes the temple as being God's house. The place where he dwells. The house of God. And we see it a lot of times throughout scripture very common verse we know from, from uh, Psalm 23. Psalm 23 verse 6 says this, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell where? In the house of the Lord forever. We go forward just a few more chapters in Psalm 27. One thing I ask from the Lord, and this will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his holy temple psalm 122 1 this is a song of ascent it's a song of david this psalm tells us and david says i was glad when they said to me let us go into the house of the lord this is god's house this is god's place of worship for his people this is where he meets his people and the audacity of Jesus. The audacity of Jesus to say, this is my father's house. He says, why are you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And so when he says this, when he tells his parents this in this passage today, when we see that, we have to look and think about what is he going to say later on? Later on, when he comes in his public ministry. As an adult, what does he say? John 2 verse 16 says this. To those who sold doves, he told them, get these out of here. Stop turning what? My father's house into a market. Now that's a bit particularly interesting to me today because some of your translations, I don't know what you have in front of you, actually say this. Stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. Some of you have been in the shopping mall quite a bit. Some of you are all online and that's fine. Who cares? Can you believe the audacity of Jesus? Can you believe that he is saying these things? He is calling the temple this place of public worship. He's saying, this is my father's house. How dare you mess up this place and turn it into a shopping plaza? Why is this an important concept? Why do we need to spend some time here? Because the Bible teaches that the temple is the place where God dwells. The place where God comes to interact, comes to commune with his people, his chosen people. Not just anyone, but his chosen people. The ones that he calls his own children. He calls them the children of Israel. He calls them his family, the family of God. But because we're not here in the temple today, we're not here in the temple in Jerusalem today. In fact, that temple there in Jerusalem doesn't exist anymore. So we have to ask ourselves, well, well then, who are God's chosen people today? Where does God dwell now? Well, here's the basic answer. It's the church. It's the church, the bride of Christ. But we're going to have to dig in a little bit deeper, give a little bit more explanation so you understand that. Because we're coming around this final bend. We've been in a sermon series We've been going through uh, uh, the tenets of our faith. We, we call this the creeds. We've been talking about these are the things that we hold on with a tight fist. We've been working through these things for the last month or so. And if we say that God's dwelling place is in the church, then we have to ask the question, well, what is the church? Up to this point, we've asked ourselves these type of questions. Why is the Bible important? Or who is God? Or who is this Jesus? So as we come around the final bend... We have to ask this question what is the church and what is the church family and what does it mean to be part of the family of God the family of God if we're honest when we look at scripture the family of God is full of really awkward family relationships it's not so different from your family or mine families I always have a place where we see brokenness on display we know what's going on behind the scenes when you came together as a family this week or if in this coming week you you know what's kind of going on you know that there's that weird crazy uncle and there's this lady and there's it you just you know you know not everybody else does and this is no different from God's family and the Bible shows us it doesn't actually keep all the skeletons in the closet no it puts it out there in front that the the heroes that we read in scripture that they've got some issues and when the, the New Testament opens up, the Gospel of Matthew traces through the lineage of the Messiah, and it shows us the unsavory characters that are in the family line. The list includes and even highlights some of those that are really damaged people. There's an adulterer who who married and murder, excuse me murdered his lover's husband to cover up the misdeed. There's idolaters, there's liars, there's prostitutes, and there's notoriously wicked kings. And they're all in the lineage of Jesus. It's a motley crew to produce the Savior of the world. And Matthew sets up the New Testament with this tainted Lineup as he traces the ancestry of Jesus the Messiah because every person on this list shares something in common. Whether they are relatively good people or notoriously bad people, they are all sinners in need of a Savior. That's why the list is there. Paul goes through... As he writes the, the book of Romans and builds this case and, and brings it all together and puts himself in, in that pagans or Gentiles or, or even the religious Jews, they are all guilty before God as sinners. He comes to this conclusion in Romans three twenty three for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So everyone needs a savior. Even the godly Virgin Mary, the mother of the Messiah, she needs a savior a savior she acknowledges her need for a savior in and Marys benedictus she prays in Luke at 147 she says my spirit has rejoiced in God my savior she says in Luke chapter 51 uh, verse 51 she says that through the one that was in her womb God had remembered her and shown her mercy just like he had shown Abraham and his descendants perfect people don't need mercy friends perfect people don't need mercy. Sinful people need mercy. Sinful people need a savior. You and I need a savior. Mary and Joseph, they needed a savior as well. Abraham needed a savior. King David needs God's mercy. Mary needs God's mercy. And Jesus is the savior for sinners. The Savior for those who would cry out for God's mercy. And what we find is that through Jesus, God has a new dwelling place. Remember the passage I read just a few minutes ago when we started with today where the old prophet Simeon had held up the little baby Jesus and meets him for the very first time. Do you know what he says? Let me read it for you again. Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I can die in peace, for my eyes have seen your, what, salvation, which you have prepared in sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So in his old age, God is giving Simeon a gift. He is allowing him to see with his own eyes the Savior who had come to put all things back in its proper place. The one who could take all of the brokenness in the world, all the hurt, all the pain, all the suffering, and all the darkness of this world, and is going to restore it all back together and make it whole once again. And he is holding that baby in his arms. What a gift this is gift that's been prepared in the sight, Simeon says, of all the nations. The one who would reunite mankind's relationship with the Almighty Father God. This verse has a key component. Salvation was not only for the people of Israel. As he picks up this child and he gives this blessing and he points out the prophecy that is to come. He he also points out the salvation is not just for the people of Israel. God's rescue plan would be for all people. For all nations. For the Jews and for the Gentiles, those who are not of Israel descent. It's for them as well. The Apostle Paul tackles this as well. He talks about it and he, he does this beautiful thing that happens when Jesus came to rescue the world. The way that this rescue plan extends to all the nations. Paul is giving us a behind the scenes look into what happens. So today we have these scenes that are set up behind us. We're kind of depicting the story of Christ and his life and how all things come together. But behind the scenes, I want to show you. I'm going to try to find out how I can get across here because you may not be able to see this behind the curtain. Let me just show you, because it's interesting. So underneath there, I don't know if you can see it, there's choir risers underneath this thing. And if some of you are able to look more closely, if you can see up underneath all the way, uh, there's 11 hymnals on each corner that help to hold the thing up so that it doesn't tip over and it doesn't Fall, and this whole thing is precariously balanced. Where if I bumped into it, or one of the musicians when they come in, the whole thing's going to topple over and fall into the side. That's what's going on behind the scenes. And these ones that are upset up a little bit higher, they're even more precarious. We're having a good time. That's what's going on behind the scenes. What the Apostle Paul is doing here, there's this beautiful thing that is happening. He says, here's what's going on behind the scenes. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 says this. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth... Remember, at that time, you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and the foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. This is what's going on behind the scenes. When Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, what happens is you foreigners were brought into the family. Look at verse 19. Consequently, he says, you are no longer foreigners, you are no longer strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people. And now you have become members of his own household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone said, you had your citizenship somewhere else. You used to be part of a different tribe. You used to be part of a different community. You used to be part of a different family. But now you are members of this household. You are members with the, the prophets and the, the apostles. And you have Jesus Christ himself, the son of God, as the head of your household. And wait, there's more. This is God's new dwelling place. This is God's new dwelling place. Verse 21. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to be what? A holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become what? The dwelling in which God lives through his spirit this is where God dwells this is the house of God it's not a tabernacle in the desert it's not a temple in Jerusalem no the house of God the father's house is one that has been built in the heart of his people his chosen people his family the family of God And this house this house has been built to last this family has been built to last why Because God is calling it his forever family. You and I, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, we are brothers and sisters in the family of God. There are some churches, and maybe you grew up in one of those churches where everyone refers to one another as brother Tom and sister Susie. I mean, whatever it is, because they want to help reinforce that idea of being brothers and sisters in the family of God. Specifically, when we gather together here in church, we gather in a covenant community together to say that we will be committed. We'll be committed to one another. We will be united with one another. We will be united with one another in Christ. We are one. Now we're trying to demonstrate that here. We have this picture of a church, but it's a picture of a church building. And that's misleading in some ways because this is not the proper church building. The building that we are in is not the proper church building. No, the building has been built in our hearts. And we commit ourselves one to another to be part of the church, part of God's forever family we commit ourselves to being on the same mission the same goal the great commission that was given to us by Jesus himself to glorify God and to make disciples of all nations that's what unites us that's what the church's purpose is that's what God's forever family is all about he tells his disciples in John chapter 13 he says this a new command i give unto you love one another As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, he says, everyone will know that you are my what? My disciples, my followers, my family. If you love one another. This is the distinctive characteristic of the church of God's people, that we would demonstrate love for one another. We would not be divided and separated and pulled apart for any reason because we're going to hold on to those essentials with such vigor. We're going to say, these are the things that unite us and hold us together. We cannot be shaken. We cannot be pushed off. We're committed to that. We're in covenant relationship to that. Because this is God's family. And so it can be concerning at times. When we look around and we see the world seemingly coming apart. We see battles going on within the church and without the church. We see concerning things and we see all of this happening. We say, well, how are you going to take care of your family, God? What's going to happen? How does this all piece together? And he says, just commit to each other. Love one another. Demonstrate love so that the world can see what was intended for the church. And he says, I'll give you something to to keep a focus on for the future you're an hour forever home he says don't let your hearts be troubled don't be too concerned about what you see around you because this is not the world that you live in you're not a citizen here on earth he says believe in God therefore you can believe also in me and here it comes again my father's house he says he says, my father's house has many rooms. My father's house has room for you, he says. My father's house is being built. It's being prepared. It's being built in you, in your hearts. He says, I'm going to go. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'll come back. I'll take you with me so that you may be where I am. He says, I can be connected to you forever. Our forever home is found in Christ. He says, my father's house, there's plenty of room in my father's house. As a 12-year-old child, he says, my father's house. As a 30-year-old man, he says, my father's house. He tells us here, as he says, for all who follow him, he said, in my father's house, there's room. Jew, Gentile alike. There's room for you. As a church, we also use... The tagline, we, we try to say, we want every man, woman, and child to be able to find their place here. Find your place. What does that mean exactly? We want you to find your place. And if you're finding your place, we're trying to say this in three relationships. We often say this. We want you to find your place in Christ. Find your place in the church or in this church specifically. Here at this address, 630 Main Street. We want to find your place here. And we want you to find your place in the community. Going out. Because the church is not just gathered together. No, we see the Great Commission is a gathering together and a scattering that the gospel will go in all directions. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. We want you to find your place. We want you to feel welcomed home. This morning, our band is, is a homecoming. Just to be able to bring the whole family together. The Mention Family Band is what we've got this morning. They're all coming from New York City, from Pittsburgh, all these different places. And the Wentlands are involved too. Thank you, Wentlands, for being here as well. All coming together. Homecoming. Christmas is that. There's a Folgers commercial that just milks this for all of its worth. The smell of Folgers. I feel like I'm at home. The rest of you who are not drinking Folgers are also looking at it. I don't think that's the smell of home. But they want to market that for you. Well, this is what home feels like. Well, what does home feel like when it comes to Randall Church or when it comes to the church? We want to welcome you home. We want you to find your place upward in Christ, inward in the church, outward in the community. And maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're saying, I, I'm, not sure, I, I'm not sure that I've found my place yet. I'm not sure that I feel at home yet let's let's verify a few things here because when it comes to being welcomed home there's a few things that you're going to need to do first thing you're going to need to do is change your address galatians chapter 4 says this when the time had fully come god sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship what happens when you're adopted You're moved from wherever you were to wherever you're going to reside now. Change your address. Have you invited the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into your heart so that you can be adopted by him? See, adoption requires that someone, if you're going to be adopted, someone showed up at just the right time to be able to take you out of that situation, whatever it happened to be. They showed up at just the right time. They have to possess the right qualifications. You can't just send the kid off with anybody. No, they have to go through extensive work to say, yes, this is a person who can adopt you, child. An adoption requires someone who has the right resolve. It takes a lot of work to do that. It takes a lot of work to pull together the finances, to, to put together all the paperwork, to, to gather things together to have the right home available, all of those things. And God has done each of those things for you. He showed up at just the right time. When the set time had fully come, God had sent his son at the perfect time. He had the right qualifications. He was Lord and Savior of the world. And he did the work. He had the right resolve. When he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he pushed forward. He said, I'm going through with this for the sake of the world. Maybe you need to change your address. Give your heart and your life to Christ so that you can be adopted into the family of God. Secondly, welcome home. You're going to change your address. You get to change your status. Verse 6 says, because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but you are what? God's child. Your status has changed. You've been adopted into the family of God. Welcome home. Welcome into the family of God. Because God had planned to love you. If you've heard anything in this sermon series as we go on, if we we look at Christmas through a different set of eyes, I want you to realize, I want you to see that all of creation comes together at this point. At this point, it's very, very important. And there was a plan there to love, and to demonstrate His love for you. He paid the price to love you. He gave His life on the cross. He defeated death itself and rose again on the third day. And now he pursues you with his love. If this is not the first time that you've heard this message, then he is pursuing after you. He wants your heart. He's calling you to him. He says, I want to adopt you into the family of God. Change your status. Thirdly, welcome home. Change your future. Since you are a child of God. See, it's already being declared. Since you are a child of God, God has also made you his heir. You are heir to the throne. God promises you and I a full inheritance with all that comes with that. And the full inheritance of the Son of God, the full inheritance of the children of God, the family of God is to be together with me in paradise, he says. He even says that to the thief on the cross in his last moments there on this earth. He says, you will be with me in paradise today. Why? Because you are an heir of the throne. And he's been preparing the eternal throne for you and for me. And one day he's going to say, child, welcome home. Welcome home. As the band makes their way back up here this morning, I just want to say the last Kind of component, the last thing to share with you this morning. You've heard this phrase many times before. Home is where the heart is. Home is where the heart is. So the band, they're here. They're home for the holidays. Good. We're glad. Their, their heart is here at home. In a few days, about two days from now, for myself, it's my 20th anniversary. And so my 20, our 20th anniversary Home is where the heart is. So 20 years ago, my wife and I made a commitment to each other. That we would come together as one. That we would start a family. That we would be a home. And we are told that marriage is a reflection of what Jesus has done for us. The bride of Christ. And so that our our lives, our marriages are supposed to reflect this. So 20 years later, I hope that my, my home has been a place that has demonstrated the love of Christ. But home is where your heart is. Where is your heart at right now? Is your heart at home? In a heavenly home? Because if you're lost and wandering and trying to find your way because you can't seem to attach yourself to anything, it's because you're attaching yourself to things that are not of this earth. Give your heart to Jesus today. The church is to be representative of this relationship between God and man, the Savior and his bride. Forever home. And if that's the case, if that relationship is whole, that connection is real, you will always be at home. You'll always be at home here at Randall Church. You'll always be at home whenever you are on mission to glorify God, to make disciples of all nations, whether that's here on Main Street or across the world, somewhere else, you'll still be at home. So this morning, let's pray together. Lord, we love you, we thank you. We thank you for the gift that you've given to us there on the cross. The way, Lord, when you talk about your Father's house, you also talk about the way that you have made for us to also be invited to the father's house lord i pray that that would be real to someone here this morning it's good to come together it's good to be with family it's good to be here in this place together lord there's one day going to be a homecoming service that we all want to be a part of or we want to raise our voices and sing to you for all of eternity in just a moment we're going to sing about the the names of christ but let our hearts be joyful let our hearts be longing for you knowing lord that you are calling each and every one of us to be part of the family of god calling each and every one of us home we love you lord We thank you for this time. We pray that we have glorified you. In Jesus' name, amen.